Okay, we said we're going to get started and all that. So, um, just to make sure you're in the right room, and we appreciate that you made the long trek over from the main building to this side and all. Um, we're excited, Jenny and I, to be able to talk with you. The session is called Navigating the Unique Obstacles of Raising Kids in the Mission Field. So I hope you all are in the right place. So I just wanted to start with, why do we need this seminar in a medical missions conference? Part of the reason why is that I am actually not a doctor. I am by profession a teacher and like pseudo counselor. And I've been haunted by a documentary that was made about missionary kid abuse at Mamu Academy in Guinea, West Africa. I watched it while I was in Kenya and it's called All God's Children. And there was one question that was asked by a former uh, Mamu student to his missionary dad that still haunts me to this day because he's a 50 plus year old man but when he asked this question he becomes a child again. And the question he asks is, how many African souls were worth my soul? A hundred? A thousand? And that question just gets me to the core because what he was really asking was, am I more important than your work? Are my needs, my faith, just as important as a lost soul? Does God really care and remember me? And so to me, that is why we want the seminar to be part of the GMHC. Because the whole thing is the idea of worth. What um, the kids need to know and families need to know is, are we just as worth the effort and time as saving the lost? So with that also, um, just want to make one sort of uh, stipulation is that we are not, Jenny and I, going to give you an exhaustive how-to um, overcoming all the obstacles. Uh, we are going to be more sharing our own personal journeys, the tips that we kind of learned along the way, and hopefully through the stories of our own personal um, journeys, you will get a sense of how to be maybe more intentional as you pursue sorry, um, missions yourself whatever stage that you're at. And with that also, I just wanted to share this picture. Um, as I said, I was a uh, teacher at Rift Valley Academy, and uh, my husband worked at Kajabi Hospital. So one of the cool things that you get to do is you get to meet a lot of missionary kids when you're working at Rift Valley Academy. So this is a picture of us as we went on an expedition down to the equator. And as you can see from the picture, one of the privileges I've had is that when I worked with missionary kids, I was so amazed at how fascinating, interesting, and super mature and just engaging, passionate individuals that they were. Some of the most amazing people I've ever met were missionary kids. But along with that, I have also met some of the most bitter and disillusioned and angry missionary kids I've ever met, or students I've ever met. Um, because there are things that uh, are unique to their experience that can either produce amazing people or sometimes disillusionment. 
And so, to me, this is part of the reason why we wanted to have this seminar. So, we talked about obstacles and how to navigate through them. So, we felt like we couldn't share the story without first talking about our own journeys. So, obstacle number one for us, and it's going to be an obstacle for any of you that decide to go onto the mission field, is that you walk away from normal. I um, wanted to mention, in 2010, my husband and I decided, after many, many years of doing short-term service, that we really needed to go for long. Um, we wanted to leave um, and show our kids that we can do long-term service even at our age. And so our son was just finishing his freshman year in high school, and our daughter was uh, just graduating from her sixth grade elementary. And uh, we decided at that point, it will be now or never if we could wanted to go overseas as a family. So um, one of the things that was cool about our existence in our Alexandria, Virginia area was we lived in Mount Vernon, near Mount Vernon. And so I remember uh, that when I told my um, immigrant father, Dad, we're thinking about purchasing a home that is um, near Mount Vernon, and the home used to be on land that belonged to George Washington. And my dad is the classic Asian dad, and it was one of the very few times I saw him cry. And the reason why was he said, this is why I came to America. I left a war-torn country, a small countryside town in South Korea, to make this possible. Sandy, you are completing my American dream, and what a wonderful country America is, where you, an immigrant daughter of a Korean immigrant, can somehow purchase land from the father of this country. America is beautiful. And so when I then said to my father years later, I am going to leave Alexandria, Virginia, and we want to go to Kenya, it was very difficult because I'm leaving not only my normal, but I'm leaving his normal, and I'm leaving not only my American dream, but really his American dream. So that was very difficult, and I underestimated how difficult that would be. So that's obstacle number one. Along with that, uh, we lived in Fairfax County. So I don't know if you know like the school systems yet. Um, if you're a parent, you might. Fairfax County is consistently named one of the top school districts in the U.S. Uh, it made uh, history so much and was so famous that if you're into K-drama, there is actually a, a K-drama called Sky Castle that is all about the cutthroat world of education in South Korea, and the educational expert came from Fairfax County, Virginia, to South Korea to give her expertise and all that. And so Fairfax County for us is kind of like being at the top of our um, Asian educational game by having our kids get educated there. So when we decided to go overseas, again, leaving normal meant leaving a school district that had a proven track record. Um, where we lived also was consistently named by the Washingtonian Magazine as the best place to raise kids in uh, the area. 
And so, um, again, we were leaving normal. So those were things that are sort of external trappings. But what I underestimated about leaving normal was the intangible. That when we decided to go to Kenya, you are taking your kids away from extended families, Christmas and holidays with their aunts and cousins and grandparents. And for my daughter, her love of ballet and tap, no more ballet and tap lessons because there are none in Kenya. No more homecoming games to go to. And um, even our dog, we had to leave our dog behind. No more RJ to greet us at the door. And he was taken over in dog sitting by our friend. So that for us was sort of one obstacle. Now I'm going to have Jenny share about her obstacles. Hi everyone. Um, just a little background on me. I, I my name's Jenny. Uh, my husband's Dave. I don't know if you saw that in the first picture, but um, and we have three girls. Uh, Dave and I are both family physicians. We worked. Uh, we lived in worked in Nepal for about five years. And so this picture was taken shortly before we left for the field. Um, my daughter, my youngest is one, she's in the Korean dress there in the middle. And then, as you can see, there's many more people than just my girls and my husband. Uh, we have a very large extended family right there, and Sandy alluded to this too, but for us, walking away um, involved a lot of um, leaving despite parental objections. And certainly um, just the idea of like leaving behind your family is a big deal. And depending on, it really, no matter the size of your family, but even your community and where you've laid roots down, saying goodbye is a big deal. And we'll, we'll kind of broach this a little later on in the talk. But um, So yeah, I think with, along with Sandy, I think when you're preparing to go, on one hand you're galvanized, you're excited, this is God's call for you. At the same time, all the people that you are leaving behind are really grieving that. They don't, they, it's not like, well, my parents were not behind us at all. But, you know, if, but even if they were excited for you, for them, they're the ones being left behind. And so uh, it was, I don't think this really figured in our initial goings. Like, we didn't really think to, to really stop and honor that. Um, and then again, for our kids, of course, like all they knew as these little youngsters were just, you know, the scores and scores of people in their lives. And what would that look like on the field? I don't know. Like, we weren't sure. And of course, we were hopeful that the mission community would involve us and we would be able to find some kind of community there. But it wasn't automatic, and it certainly wasn't guaranteed. Um, and I think that's, again, something that we didn't stop to really think about uh, before going uh, in, a, in a more tangible way. So um, certainly that was something to say, okay, we're, we're going to have to leave this all behind, and that's, and that's hard. So. All right. Besides walking away from normal, what we have is obstacle number two, and I think this is one that a lot of people are concerned about, is how do you educate your kids when you are going overseas? So, as we said, we don't have an exhaustive list. There are lots of resources and options, but we're just going to give you our two stories that we chose. Um, for me, I chose Kajabi, Kenya. Uh, mainly reason why is because it had a hospital for my husband to work at, but also it had a school. Uh, Rift Valley Academy is um, a boarding school for missionary kids 
By profession, I am a teacher, so it worked out well where I could work on staff as part of the Rift Valley Academy uh, teaching force, but also my kids can go to school there. And so um, why did I choose Rift Valley Academy? Uh, one time uh, I decided that I'm going to be the super Christian mom and try to homeschool my kids for about three months. During the three months, it was a disaster. Um, there were a lot of tears, lots of fights, and I learned very early on that if I was going to be the teacher for my own children, I'm not going to have a relationship with them because they could not take my feedback to them without it being personal. And so it just became a disaster. So we knew, uh, especially as they got older, that I cannot be their homeschooling teacher. And also, um, we have a very uh, extroverted son who needs to be around people. So if it was just myself and his sister, I don't think he could have flourished. So we had to analyze sort of the needs of our family, the kind of makeup of who they were. And for us, we had the privilege of being able to choose Rift Valley Academy. Um, so we get there, and um, we had told our kids that this would be an option for them, and that also we valued their input. So we're going to take it one year at a time, and we're going to have them give equal opinion about how they like the school and how they like these new circumstances and all that. So one of the things I remember is um, we landed in Nairobi, and we had a host family that came to pick us up. And they were going to be in charge of getting us kind of used to the Kenya, used to Kajabi, and all that. So Kyle kind of came most likely the most reluctant. That was my son. And then when we landed, the host family had these two beautiful daughters. Um, they both kind of looked like Jessica Simpson. And so uh, they met us at the Nairobi airport. And so already from this long 36-hour fatigue of a ride, all of a sudden Kyle kind of perked up like, wow, what's going on here? And then we get to Rift Valley Academy, and they had decided that these two girls were going to show our kids around and give a tour of the school. And so by the end, uh, his conclusion when we got to our own place was, Mom, missions is good. <laughs> and um, thankfully, through the entire process, even though there has been ups and downs, as anyone can think about, of living overseas, I can still say that both um, my son and daughter, Kyle and Ali, will still say, having lived overseas, been missionary kids, was good. As our family likes to say, when we went overseas, Kenya is famous for their red stained dirt. We call it the red stain effect. That once we landed in Kenya and the dirt got on our shoes, got on our clothes, it also stained our heart and we will never be the same again. Um, especially for our daughter, I think she considers herself outside she's Asian and American, but inside she also has Kenyan red soil and that she will be considered Kenyan in heart. So, uh, so Sadie went with older children. My children were one, three, and five when we left. So 
again, the child care situation looked a little different. And when we initially went to um, Nepal, we were in the we were in the capital city. We were committed to learning language for the first like 12 to 16 months or so. Um, so for us, what that looked like was, I mean, there wasn't like outright education per se, but our oldest was kindergarten age, so she went to the international school um, in, in the city. And then my middle child, who was three, went to national preschool, where they do speak English, but there's a lot of Nepali also spoken. And then my youngest was cared for intermittently with a, for, with a Nepali, like a national house helper. Um, and, and that worked great for, again, the year that we were in Kathmandu until we moved out to the rural area, uh, in which case that, at that point I had to decide what to do with my children. Um, and so at that point, knowing that there was no real, there's no international option, we did not have a boarding school option in Nepal. Um, and so knowing that, we said, okay, the first year or so we'll, we'll try homeschooling. And I, I will, to, to, to back up a little bit about my parents' objections, I remember telling my mom, you know, she's like, what are you going to do about your children? How can you, you're not going to be able, what, what are, you're just going to run around like crazy people and not go to school? And I was like, don't worry, Mom, we can try homeschooling. And she's like, homeschooling? How can you teach your children? You're just a doctor. I mean, come on now. So obviously, you know, that didn't really impress my mother, but... The thing about homeschooling, everyone thinks that, you know, you have to keep them occupied for eight hours on end, and, and, and it's not true. I don't know, maybe some of you are already homeschooling, or maybe you're thinking about it, but what's really lovely about it was, I mean, we did end up bringing a lot of material from the States, um, but that first year was just a lot of spending, I mean, I know you spend a lot of time with your children anyway at that age, but um, just being able to incorporate a lot of things that I wanted to do and the things that I wanted to learn. There's so many resources out there, and it turned out to be just a really sweet time with my girls as they were getting in, at, at that age, just asking questions of them. What are they, how are their experiences? And um, I am a type A person by nature, so, you know, a little bit more chagrined when we didn't follow the exact schedule, but at the same time, like, so much room and opportunity to just spend time as a family in a, in a different setting. So, um, so I really appreciated those early years, even though, and again, they, at that point, we were first grade and kindergarten level things, and, um, you know, we did a lot of Bible memory, so um, some fun things to think about. But um, before even going over, I do remember having this convert, this very conversation with a, a veteran missionary who was also a teacher, who had also actually had sent her kids to RBA for a spell, had done homeschooling, also had done like a homeschooling co-op because she happened to be on a, a mission compound with like five or six other families. And I remember her saying like, you know, it seems like you need to plan out your years. I mean, people, again, back home have the luxury of school. You know, you think K through 12 and that's what you do. But really, on the mission field, you really think every child every year. And that seems kind of exhausting at the time, you know, like, oh my gosh, every year I need a whole new plan. But really, it's like as you grow together as a family, and the time you will have more time as a family, typically, um, it, it's it's really good to remember that you're, each of your children are very different. Like, they're not going to necessarily all fit you know, the homeschooling mode, they're not all necessarily going to all fit, you know, the boarding school mode or the national school mode. And even though you might have to stop and recalibrate each time, it is an opportunity to really kind of dig deep and to know what you, to really understand your children well. And I thought that 
was just really good general advice because in the end I don't want to just take my kids for granted. This is an experience that we're all learning and we're all we're, we are all participating in, and that includes their experiences. You know, being being educated and, and education, of course, is more than just you know the book learning. Um, so it, it was just a really it was just really sage advice that I kept going back to each year. Like, okay, now what? Um, now what's next for you know my first child and my middle child and then my youngest? Um, and, and those were really sweet times for us. So, um, and then we're uh, actually I was going to go back up on the slide here, but I think Sammy had mentioned some other things, and, and, and you will come to know that some of your children might need extra needs. Um, and, and that's and that's hard sometimes too because um, we did have our youngest ended up having some special needs, uh, which is a large reason why we ended up transitioning back to the states. Um, but you know, again, to I, I would I would want to encourage you that you know this is where hopefully you have good mission agencies who are just as invested in your children and understand your concerns for them and hopefully can point you to some good resources. We'll also bring up some resources at the end of the talk, um, but. To, to talk widely and repeatedly to people about your children um, really helps, I think, in not feeling like you have to figure all of it out before you go. Um, so a lot of these things we came to realize and to develop as we went along. So a little bit flying by the seat of your pants, too. So it's not for the faint of heart, I guess, either. So, um, okay, next slide is about... I'll say one other thing. Um, I think we want to be up here to tell you that each of the kids are going to have some unique aspect. And so we managed to sort of look at our children and our families, and you have to just be creative. Um, sometimes, though, it's like really out of the box. Um, we have a friend who has a daughter who wants to be a prima ballerina. They're going into a country that's a closed country with no ballets program. They've opted that they're going to send their daughter to a ballet boarding school. And so for a period of time, they had a son at RBA. They had their daughter in D.C. in a prima ballerina uh, thing. And then they had their daughter living with them. And so their entire um, family was scattered. Um, they chose that. Um, and uh, so far, we feel like it's worked for them because their daughter really has this desire to become a ballerina. And, and so sometimes it's going to create some hard choices and uh, we want you to be encouraged that ultimately families are resilient and we can manage to survive. And we've survived. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna talk about the sort of third obstacle. We're gonna introduce this idea. If you haven't heard this term already, third culture kids. This is largely based on um, the groundbreaking book by Ruth Redkin, and I forgot her collaborator, but um, this is a wonderful resource. A lot of what we learned over the years do, does draw from, from this book. Um, it's almost like required reading for a lot of, um, of going, for people going overseas, um, but it has some great, great um, understanding, just even like the psychology. So Sandy's going to touch on some of these points, but we did want to introduce this idea of third culture kids, where your children are experiencing the world that's going to be different than the culture you grew up in, um, and so they're and they're it's different than the the host culture, so the wherever you're going to be, um, and so they're in this kind of unique 
new dimension. And so when we went to missions training, actually they had a little mission, they did have a lot of the children's programs. And so they, they made this, this analogy for the kids, which I thought was really neat and very, and, and, and very pertinent. Uh, but basically, you know, your, your parents are the, the red juice on the left here, the really dark juice. Um, and then, you know, the host culture that you're going to is the white juice in the middle. And then you take those two juices and you mix them together and you have this third juice that is really not fully the first one and certainly not fully the second one. And it's, it's really a third juice. And that's really what your kids are going to develop in their sense of identity and sense of the, what they resonate with, depending, again, depending on where you are and, and um, where you go and how, for how long. But really this idea of this third culture and really kind of understanding that, that you might not necessarily intuitively understand the lens through which your children are interpreting their world. So I think you might have heard this term before, but we call this obstacle number three. We're going to concentrate on this one the most because I think it's so much about identity and worth. And so Jenny alluded to it that this was taken from Dave Pollock and Ruth Van Meeken. And so here's the more like scientific uh, circles where basically, again, is describing what's going to happen to us. Um, if any of you are in the multicultural or you could be in the military um, branch or if you've been a diplomat, uh, there's a lot of other um, groups of people that can be considered third culture kids. Um, and so when you think about this, and some of you might be able to relate, why is it even more particular to missionary kids? Uh, according to a thesis done by a sociologist named Helm, she basically writes that missionary kids typically spend the most amount of time overseas in one country compared to all the other kind of third cultured people. 85% of missionary kids can spend up to about 10 years in a foreign country. And that these group of people generally have the most amount of interaction with the local population. And so they are the most integrated into the local culture. But they are most integrated into the local culture of the host country, but they are not as integrated and have the least amount of inter interaction with people from their passport country. So that is why I think the third culture missionary kid has a little bit of a unique life experience compared to maybe some others. So um, even though these are obstacles, I wanted to talk about why there are some really awesome benefits of being a third culture kid. In this day and age, everyone is looking for an expanded, more global worldview. Just by life circumstances, TCKs tend to have a much more cosmopolitan view. Along with that, they have a lot more cross-cultural empathy and adaptability. They're so used to situations. My daughter went on a, a trip with uh, University of Virginia to Nicaragua, and there was a whole team of uh, teenagers that went with her, and they were all, it was only for a two-week trip, but they were really traumatized by the fact that they had to shower with buckets outside. My daughter was like, oh, this is like normal, it's okay. And so it was just a very different uh, approach to cultural empathy and adaptability that she went through. Along with that, they're most of the time multilingual if they've been there for a long time, which is a huge asset. And then one of the other things that you'll notice with their culture kids is that they're very mature beings. 
as I said, when I first encountered um, Rift Valley kids, I was amazed at how socially engaging, well-mannered, and interesting they were. They were just very mature. And I just thought, are they teens? They just seem so opposite of what you experience when you interact with a teenager today. Um, along with that, the world is their classroom. Uh, you don't need to teach um, third culture kids about poverty, about other cultures. Um, it's a part of their daily lives. Um, one of the little shout outs for Rift Valley Academy that I wanted to point out was that one of the really cool traditions at Rift Valley Academy is you get to go on junior, senior interim trips. So students get to sign up during their junior and senior in high school on various offerings. So while I was in Kenya, some of the offerings that they had is you can climb uh, Mount Kil uh, Kilimanjaro or Mount Kenya. You can learn about Islamic culture by having a week living with uh, Islamic folks in Zanzibar. Uh, you can learn about ecosystems and environmental sustainability by being in the Indian Ocean scuba diving and doing eco-research in Mombasa. So those were like some offerings that they got to choose as a junior and senior. Kyle, he chose aviation, where he got to go with Missions Aviation Fellowship and literally learn how to fly. Uh, when I signed off as a parent, I did not realize that he was actually going to man one of those little tiny Cessna airplanes. And one of the traditions is the kids circle the uh, school to kind of wave at us. And <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Uh, but anyway, he had this amazing experience where for a week, he and his uh, team of friends got to fly around the um, country of Kenya. But they also had a goal that they were going to bring medical supplies to the Bush medical clinics and be a source of blessing to all those that were out in the remote areas. So not only did he get to learn to fly, but he also got to witness uh, bush medicine and all the nomadic people that came and depended upon these Christians for their services. And it was, of course, as you can imagine, an amazing life experience for him. My daughter chose um, working with street children um, in uh, Ethiopia. And so she got to do a week of uh, doing sports camps, playing soccer, and um, feeding the boys that were basically orphaned due to um, either addiction or their moms being prostitutes. And so they had just this week of having like, kind of like an American sports camp. But one of the things that she remembers is that she got to then visit a local and learn how to roast Ethiopian coffee beans and in this little hut um, have, she says, the best coffee of her life. And so these are the kind of things that um, they got to experience that we didn't even have to have as a manufactured sort of uh, thing. And we call it that this is just a field trip that is just out of this world. Um, so that was something that was cool for them of the world is their classroom. Along with that, they got to experience firsthand witness to God and how faithful he is in the nations around the world. My son still remembers to this day the best church service he ever had, which was at a maximum security prison in Kenya. Um, there was this spontaneous eruption of praise 
which ended in for a boy he was thought it was the coolest thing ever, like a mosh pit of praise where basically the the men were so euphoric about praising God it became kind of like a concert mosh pit and he just jumped in and they were, you know, carrying him around and it was just so euphoric and so spontaneous and pure that he still remembers it to this day of how awesome it was to see people who were imprisoned free because of their love of the Lord. Um, with that also, I just wanted to mention the product for us that was really great. Um, it's not in all missions services because some are in developing worlds or cities, but we were in a pretty impoverished area. So our kids had little to no social media access and internet. I did not have to worry too much because the internet was so slow and so bad, they really didn't have access. They didn't even want a smartphone because it would burn because of the power grid. And so you would kill your phones because it would just like die and all that. And so um, our son and daughter grew up with very little social content at all. And so we didn't have to manufacture that. And then for those that are really into healthy living, uh, the other sort of side benefit that we had because we were in an impoverished nation is by just default, we had to live in a more organic, healthier life. Um, where we had to go was just by walking. So our kids walked everywhere. There was no access to cars. And then also everything had to be made from scratch. And if you wanted an egg, you had to go to your neighbor and get it from their chicken. And the veggie ladies came, and um, that was literally from their garden. So you might not have like a variety of food, but it was very much like pure food. And so I think we were most likely the healthiest we were in uh, when we were in Kenya because of just the fact that we had to make everything and we had to walk everywhere to get it. So these are, to me, some of the cool third culture kid benefits. But of course there are challenges. And so I don't want you to think like, wow, everything's awesome. They're flying and you know drinking great coffee and all that. Because there are some uh, problems. One of them is, is that they can have a confused identity. Um, a lot of them will not know exactly how to um, identify themselves. As I said, my daughter is on the outside, she looks Asian, but she's also American, but she's also in her heart feeling like she's Kenyan. So when she tries to explain that to people, there's that look of either disinterest or confusion, and I know that it's okay the first time, but the more she repeats that story or that explanation, the more sometimes she can feel, I don't know who I am anymore. And that's a hard thing to deal with when you're young. It's hard to deal with when you're an adult. So, confused identity. Um, also, even though our kids have a cosmopolitan point of view, sometimes TCKs are judgmental. And the reason why is because they've lived in a very closed environment, and they've been in most likely a lot of rule-oriented environments. So when they look at others that seem to be living freer um, or uh, they haven't traveled anywhere, they can be kind of judgy about them and in an obnoxious way. So I call that a challenge. <laughs> also, even though they're really mature, they're also slightly not grown up. Um, part of it is that they haven't had the normal rites of passages that a lot of teenagers just go through. For example, my two kids, it saved us a ton of money, 
They never got their driver's license because there was no opportunity. And Kenya, everybody drives on the left side of the road, and so they were scared to death to even drive. Also, most of the cars are manual. So again, there were some hindrances that made it so that they had delayed driver's license. And then when they got back to America, they went straight to college where there wasn't really a need for a car. So my son did not get his license until he was like 25. And the same thing for my daughter. So we never had to worry about car insurance for a very, very long time. So that was really nice. <laughs> Um, there is also sort of a rootlessness in TCKs, just because they've traveled so much. So many places have been their home, so they're not sure um, how to settle down. So with the rootlessness, they also have a restlessness. They sometimes feel like the only way that they could cope is continuing to move on to the next place and all that. And so um, one of the things that if you want to ask a TCK, the most difficult question you could ask them is, where is home for you? Because they don't know how to define that. Home is everywhere for them, or nowhere. And the last thing would be that for a lot of TCKs, um, there is prolonged stress. Um, I've met a lot of TCKs that have been in very hard places. So they have, might have experienced or seen people who have experienced violence or terrorism or just war. But there is also just this underlying stress of just living overseas that as you're in a fishbowl can kind of take a toll on you. Um, something simple like for us was just drinking water. Kajabi actually has really awesome water. But there's always some times when it says, oh, sorry, everyone, you know, boil your water, you know, decontaminate, things like that. So as a policy for myself, all the years I lived in Kajabi, I never uh, had food poisoning with our kids. And the reason why was I was, like, hyperactive about clean water. But that takes a lot of effort. It's like boiling the water, putting it through the filter system, um, making sure whatever you wash is in filter water. It's like an all-day thing. And so it kind of takes uh, its toll on you sometimes, and it's an underlying stress that you don't realize also affects your family and all that. So uh, those are sort of the challenges of third-culture kids. With that in mind, I think the things I would want to say is there are three needs that I would love for you when you decide to go overseas and you're thinking about your own families. These are by that thesis I told you about by Helm. They are called the top three needs of TCKs. The first one is that TCKs need to feel a sense of belonging. Along with that, as I said, the most difficult question for a TCK is where is home? So they need to have a sense of home. I read actually Ruth Van Rieken's book before I left overseas, and this whole yearning and need for homes seems so strong in a TCK that my husband and I, Bert and I, actually had a big argument about it because he wanted to sell everything and just go overseas. But I actually said, I would like to keep our home, we could rent it out, because we live in a pretty decent place where there's a lot of people that want to rent. And I want to have a permanent address that the kids can say is their permanent address. Um, needless to say, at the end of this huge discussion fight, um, I ended up winning out. <laughs> and so we kept that home and we rented it out. 
Um, and for me, I just wanted it because I wanted it for our kids. And um, now he thanks me because we also had residency in Virginia so that our kids could get state college tuition. <laughs> so we saved ourselves money uh, and all that. But a lot of it had to do not really with finances, but with this sense of home. And then for a long time, I'm mentioning my daughter, uh, when someone asked her, what is home for you? She even wrote about it in an essay. She called home the window seat of an airplane. That's home for her. That's her most comfortable place. And I thought that was really elegiac and sweet, but my mother's heart also made me like, feel so sad. Like, oh, uh, it's, it's not home, but it is for her. And then along with that is long-lasting relationships. I think TCKs need people sometimes, and they desire so much long-lasting relationships. So sometimes what you see in the phenomenon is that they marry early, and they marry each other quite a bit uh, for that reason. All right. So um, I actually wanted to just address those needs just briefly because, again, we had had some idea about um, TCKs prior to leaving the field. And it's a little different taking, you know, really itty-bitty kids because they don't know any better. And they're pretty much happy wherever mom and dad are. Um, and so for us, like, that was its own blessing. Like, as, as hard and as physical as, like, little, it's taking care of littles. Um, it's, such, it's such a blessing, too, because really everywhere else, I mean, I know babies are cute and all, but, like, oh, Nepalis really love babies. And it was such a big open door for us. Every time we'd walk down the street with Vivi, our youngest, um, you know, just being embraced, like, Nepalis would just take her. We'd go to a restaurant, and then she'd disappear with the waiter, and we wouldn't know where she was for, like, a half hour, because they were just basically passing around in the back. And so in some ways, they, they opened so many doors. It's, it's, it's really lovely that way. Um, but in terms of just trying to make sure that they had a grounding, because basically for, for littles, like, you know, again, home is where your parents are. Um, but once they started to kind of recognize different places, and, and, and they do definitely recognize saying goodbye a lot, um, you know, we did also kind of think about things that we could really... I don't want to call it like the family idols or anything, but like things that you could hold on to that you could kind of say, this is always going to be the same wherever we go. Um, you know, whether that's like family pictures that we would just kind of, probably, you know, predominantly display, or, you know, if it was an item from someplace, I'd be like, this is, this is always going to go with us. And we've actually developed even in our family just like a really sweet tradition of like wherever we go, we try to buy a Christmas, Christmas ornament from that place um, just to remind us where we've been, you know, and that we can look back. And so these are some things that, you know, as you think about, you know, how to sort of anchor your family to each other, you know, little mementos like that can help. I mean, barring, again, your luggage limit, of course, and bringing back, bringing a lot of knickknacks and such. But I've come to understand the value of that as well. But on the flip side, again, as we mentioned, it's hard, again, to say goodbye, and to say goodbye repeatedly. Um, that's probably one of those low-level stress things that, you know, Sandy was referring to, because it's a lot. I mean, even if you are staying in the same place, in the same mission place, or in the country, the mission community, by nature, is very transient, you know, and so people come and go into your lives, and as soon as a, a one auntie or uncle comes and hangs out with your kids and they have such a blast, they're leaving, you know, or, you know, that you're here, there for two, three years, and it's time to go home, you know, and so there's a lot of goodbyes, and so I, I did, again, didn't really appreciate this fully until a little bit later into our journey, but how can you say a good goodbye? And this also is referred to in the book, and they, they do a much more better job than what I can give credence to here. But it's this idea of building a raft, like if you're going to your next destination, 
And so this is talked about a lot, but the first log of the raft that you're making is reconciliation. So, um, you know, depending again where you're going, particularly from when you're leaving, you know, home to go to your new place, this is particularly important, um, especially if you don't have family that really is behind you, if, um, you know, you're leaving behind things because you're like, I'm off to my new adventure, I don't have to deal with all this conflict I've left behind, you know, is this good for you yourself as you're engaging with this, because it might not be your children necessarily, but to do this together as a family, but who are you leaving behind, and is there any conflict there, any, maybe some, some tension or things that you are completely, you know, com- completely at peace with. Um, and really, even even if you don't maybe necessarily get to a very satisfactory resolution because of time and whatnot, but to acknowledge those things, like you are leaving behind something that might not be completely resolved and really trying your best to either seek this person out or the situation, to give it its due weight, to understand that sometimes those unresolved things, they end up really impacting, you know, how you are interacting in your next location. Um, the next log of the raft is affirmation. So this is, um, again, being able to really say thank you to the people who've been in your life at that location you're leaving. Um, for us, we were in Kathmandu for the first year. Actually, it turned out to be like closer to two years. Um, and so when we finally were moving from Kathmandu to a more remote location to finally start our, our service at the hospital, um, we went around to all of our neighbors, you know, we were just pointing out all the fun things and the fun memories that we're doing there because our kids spent a couple years there. You know, we went to the international school and pointed out and we were playing, like, this is the last time we'll play in this playground or, you know, this is the last time we'll see this teacher. Um, and being able to really, like, point out those really good memories and they remember and they can really say this is an important part of saying goodbye is to remember the good. Um, and then the farewell itself. And it's important, again, as you, and again, particularly as you grow in this journey and your kids grow with you, but, like, everyone grieves differently. And so initially when, we, when our kids were young, we, we had our goodbye tour. So along with saying thank you to all the people who impacted us or, you know, trying to say some words of affirmation, we also wanted to say goodbye. So we'd be like, goodbye to our shopkeeper, you know, goodbye to our tailor who was down the street, you know, goodbye to the washing well that we would go and get some water at, you know, and, the, and, and making sure that we would make those, like, the day-to-day moments and, and really kind of memorializing them in that way. Um, as our kids got older, you know, I realized that my children, you know, shockingly had different personalities, and, and so my children had different ways of grieving, and so my, my oldest is fairly stoic, keeps things close to the vest, doesn't really share that much. Um, on the flip side, my second is exceedingly verbal and will tell you basically as soon as a thought has formed in her head, it's out of her mouth. So, you know, they would say different things. And so, or, so when we first one, we were like, okay, are you going to say goodbye to Asuka, who's across the street? And she's like, yeah, I guess so. You know, all right, sure. I was like, you only play with her like every day for two years? Like, you know, is there more than just, I guess so? You know, and that's in my head. You know, whereas Ada's like crying, like, I'm going to miss so and so. What am I going to say to her? I'm going to give away all my toys. I'm going to do this. And so very different approaches, and just kind of honoring, I think, the, the different circumstances. Because later on I found out that Na- my oldest, Naomi, ended up writing like a 10-page letter to Asuka that I saw later on. And I was just had poured out this heart to her that she didn't really want to share with me, but was only going to Asuka. You know, and then Ada had given away all of her toys, you know. And so the ways in which they grieve are different, and to really kind of understand that personality-wise. Um, so, but, but really focusing on that goodbye. Um, and the last one is think destination. So, again, when you're in this world of goodbyes and you're just sort of like, and then it's also busy, 
um, it's hard to just think like, okay, what am I going to need? I mean, I guess you think of it peripherally, like what am I going to need in this next destination? But even for your children, just to say, okay, this goodbye is hard, it's important to do, and, it's not like an or, but it's really an and, we're going to think to the next the next stop. What's going to, what's it going to look like next? Um, for us, it was important to start that kind of a little bit early um, because they had questions like, okay, where, where are we going to go to school in America? Like, what are we, you know, who are going to our, our friends be? You know, and they, they had to kind of think about it too. Like, they had to sort of imagine it for themselves. Um, a couple times we would show them pictures, like, well, we're going to stay at your grandma's house. And do you remember this is where grandma lives? And we're going to have, you know, this is what their house looks like. And, and then we'd have to kind of go through that again. So that's, I know it's sometimes complicated to think about sort of those forward things too, but these are all, they're sort of all kind of going in tandem with each other. Um, they're not necessarily sequential, and so that's a good part of too is just to look ahead and say this is the next step and to anticipate, you know, even in the middle of this heavy goodbye or something that's hard to let go of, it's just to think, okay, this is the next thing. So those are some of these, these are some of the suggestions that are outlined in the book, obviously in more detail, um, and so how, and how we approach those things when we're saying goodbye. All right. So um, we've given you a lot of information, but um, I'll just recap. The obstacles for a lot of you that you might not remember or think about until you actually are there is all of you will somehow walk away from normal and your kids will walk away from normal. The other is, with that in mind as either families or parents, you'll have to come up with creative ways to educate and meet their social and academic needs. And then the last thing is, when you become a missionary, you do end up having your children become third culture kids. And so sometimes that is kind of daunting and scary to think that you are creating in your child sort of these sort of potential uh, cycles of loss and grief or challenges. Because I know for me, when I was growing up, I read um, John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. And so he was kind of uh, writing in disdain about American parents. And they said, you know what American parents want? They want their kids to be happy. And um, he kind of said it as like, this is not great. But what I really realized is as parents, we do want our kids to be happy. And so we want to have skills and tools for that. So the last thing I wanted to share was that despite the obstacles, there is much joy. As I said, I had a lot of privilege of working with TCKs, so it accumulated in a lot of uh, weddings. So one ceremony I remember that symbolized the TCK experience for us was that the bride and groom brought soil from all the places that they have lived their lives. So the uh, groom came with um, sand from the beaches of California. He also brought dirt from the roads of Arusha. And he also brought the red dirt from the soccer field at Rift Valley Academy. The, group, uh, the bride brought uh, soil from Texas. She brought soil from Ethiopia and also Kenya. And then as part of the ceremony, they poured all that soil into a new jar to say that this is who we are now. We are even more TCKs than ever before. But afterwards, when we were having the reception, we swung dance, we jumped with Maasai warriors as they chanted their whooping gut, guttural chants, and then at the end, we were encircled where there were Asians, Kenyans, and Caucasians 
all encircled with prayer, celebrating this joyous union. And to me, that is to me the symbol and picture of the joy that can happen with raising children overseas. And so we hope that encourages you. And the next slide is going to be resources that you can see and you can take a picture of it. And then the slide afterwards is going to be a slide of our uh, contact information. Because as you can tell, Jenny and I, we're passionate about TCKs and MKs and also about families and making it sure that you can thrive overseas and be intact as a family. And we appreciate that you all came to us today. Thank you. I think we have a small bit of time for Q&A, so if anybody wants to ask a question, you can um, ask, come up here and ask a question. Oh, and then don't forget to turn in your evaluations when you leave. Um, I was uh, curious on if you knew of a situation that worked out really well of parents with teenagers who are in a very closed country where there wasn't, um, where the only options were to stay in that country and homeschool or have someone else homeschool them in a group of kids or a boarding school and where they decided to not do the boarding school and keep them in country. I was just curious if you know of a situation. I, I, I've heard stories that that's like an incredibly difficult situation for, for teenagers and I was just curious if you had come into contact with where it worked out well. I do think that there's mixed results with that closed country. Um, I do think like some of them, uh, especially if they had daughters, they, a lot of them chose to have their daughters go to a boarding school because of just the fact that the oppressive sort of um, Islamic expectations of women was maybe what they considered a little bit unhealthy. But we do have some families that have been in a closed country where they have chosen to homeschool and kept all their kids and they seem like so far like their kids are incredibly well adjusted and happy and they made it work. Um, I think the main thing for us is honest conversations between parents and teenagers especially. Um, I'm a high school teacher and one of the things that teenagers really want is for you to not get pat Christian-y answers, they want reality and they want to have their feelings acknowledged. And so I think if you can have those kind of conversations with your children, it helps them feel like God is bigger than the Christian mission agency, God is bigger than the, the ministry, and that they um, have valid points and they are affirmed in that. And I think that to me is part of the key, is acknowledging that sometimes their needs are kind of not being met in the best way possible, but this is the circumstances that you have at this point and all that. So, yeah, but a closed country that's Muslim is a tough situation, and you're going to have to make, like, very hard choices on it. Um, but I also think it's gender-specific. I also think that sometimes, even if it might be more dangerous for girls, uh, for young men growing up in a heavy machismo, Islamic kind of view of masculinity, I'm not sure if that's healthy either. 
it might not be physically damaging, but maybe it's going to create a mindset that might not be what you want. So it's something that you'll have to talk about as a family. Thank you. Jenny, just for you, I, as a as a physician, I'm just curious how you continue to homeschool your children and balance your medical work. Uh, so, uh, I when I first went over, I was just at a residency. I just had Phoebe, my youngest, um, and I was really committed to being being sort of the constant factor for them. So I stayed home after residency. So I didn't I didn't actually practice medicine for the first three to four years after they were born. So that was my choice, again, because I wanted to be, I knew we were having these big transitions coming up. I knew that we were also going to be really heavily involved in language. And actually, our mission did recommend that we don't do any medical work while we're doing language because it's its own exhaustive process. So through that time, I was home with the children. When we went out to the village, um, I, I looked at sort of like what capacity and you know what we wanted to do with children. And we decided that yeah, collectively that maybe I would do one day a week um, for the ho- at the hospital. Um, that led to some other challenges because then it's like who's who's going to be home with my children? So um, so we had to have, sort of cobble together a few things. It was our first term, so then so we had a we actually had a sort of a. Not a, not a professional teacher, but someone who was willing to step in. So some, she came over from India, so she was like another an, an, an Indian national who helped with helped me with homeschooling so that I could work once a week at the hospital. But that was only for a year, and it, was, it wasn't super um, regular because understandably she also wanted to be engaged in ministry elsewhere too. So it did require some creativity, definitely disrupted sort of the normal schedule of me going out and, and working. Um, and then when we came back to the States on home assignment, we ended up putting our girls in public school so that I could work and keep up with my skills. So every sort of couple period of years, we had to reevaluate. Where are we now? What is my professional status? Do I feel like I need to do more work, in which case the kids have to be schooled elsewhere? Am I going to be more home with the girls, in which case I can homeschool? And that's really kind of the tension I was talking about where every year we have to reevaluate what, what is it now? What does the season look like? And so it does, it sounds exhausting, I think, that um, at the same time that when that time comes up, you're like, oh, this is a natural transition into the next step. And so for, for us, it's largely worked. Um, and now that we're back at the States, my girls do go to public school, and I work about, I work half time. So, yeah, thanks for the question. Okay, um, I think one of the ways is, uh, as Jenny mentioned, is the raft. And I think part of it is it's just acknowledging um, and kind of having them go through that journey where you intentionally sort of reconcile, affirm, uh, thank, and then think destination. I think a lot of uh, families can do the R, A, and the F, but the think destination sometimes feels like it gets kind of lost in the shuffle. At least from my experience when I was working at RVA with a lot of TCKs, 
The families, because they want to make it that the ministry was so important and affirming for them, that when I asked them, well, what do you think about going back to America? They had such negative points of view. They're like, oh, America, that's where all the evil is. Um, America is shallow. Uh, America is the land of Kardashians and reality TV. And they were very judgmental about it, and they did not look forward to that. So I think they almost had this coping mechanism of, I can only love my um, ministry country and I can't love my passport country and so I think you need to work on being able to um, find value in each of the cultures that they are part of and acknowledge it um, and also normalize it and say there are a lot of TCKs they just might not be missionary kids because when you put in like immigrants you put in people who have been in other kinds of lifestyles all of a sudden they'll realize, oh, you know what, I do have a tribe, I do have a group of people, and um, help them with that attachment um, that way. Um, but I do think celebrating the places that you've been in, and really, um, that's why I, I kind of use the wedding as the illustration of trying to acknowledge you're not just this one-dimensional person. You are created in many different facets, and each one of those is equally valid, and they're making you more beautiful and more interesting and more awesome. And so if you could have that as like the attitude, I think it helps with the attachment. But I think also the main thing is they need to feel like they're attached first to their parents. And so I know that a lot of my students um, they would say, how do your parents feel about you? Some of them will say, I am in the way. They, um, I, my needs are not as important as you know, this African's needs. But a lot of them will say, also, I have to be the adult. I need to take care of my mom and dad. Um, I started with college counseling, and so when I started that as a um, staff member at RVA, they would say, I need to figure out how to find money to help my mom and dad so I can go to college and all that. And it was just like they took on a parental role, and I think that was something that maybe was like the bad side of maturing too quickly. And also because of just a lot of them, if they don't feel attached to their parents, I think they would find it very hard to attach to anybody else. And so one of the things that you need to really affirm in them is you are not in the way of ministry. You are more valuable. But if you ask a lot of missionary kids, they'll feel like they were just the casualty or the sort of the byproduct that they're not the focal point. And if you can somehow change that mindset and help them see that they are not forgotten by you as a parent, and definitely by God, it helps a lot. Um, there was one last thing I'll say. When we had a baptism at Rift Valley Academy, one of the kids had been a missionary kid for a very, very long time. And then when he gave his testimony, he said, it was only when I came to Rift Valley Academy that suddenly I realized God cared about me. Like my personal desire, like I wanted to play soccer. Like it seemed like such a shallow thing to want to do but that God gave that to me when I came here made me realize even my small little needs is important to him and that it's okay. And so I think as parents, 
we need to really validate our children, especially when we go overseas, because they're feeling so incredibly insecure of where they stand in the hierarchy of the family and where they stand in the hierarchy of God's kingdom. So if you could do that, I think attachment will work. We've had colleagues who have also had um, trouble with like mental illness in their children and all that too. So if you're looking for like specific, there are there are lots of services overseas as well. Of course, they're a little more expensive to get to depending on where your country is. Um, I think in this post-pandemic, the Zoom you know modality is definitely more common. And so, um, but to really understand who your like member care services are because we that's an important part. Like at least our mission was really good about that. Like how the how the health of the children were. And I think that's also something to think about if you guys are still like in the pre-field mode just to think about how do you take care for children like when 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 they have issues like are they going to are you going to feel like they're going to hear you or you have people to you have expressed people to go to when you are struggling with a child's mental health or some like some kind of issue at school and whatnot and so those those services are available it's about it's just about saying if they can if they can um, try to get you to them um, so hopefully that's How much time do you have? <laughs> so, so um, I will tell you, it's not a joke. <laughs> They're not joking. How can you take your grandchildren? We actually, Sandy and I, we gave a whole talk about how parents, our, our parents, were very resistant to us going, and largely because of the children. You know, like again, my kids were very young, little, little bit like itty bitty, and they were the first of the grandchildren. So, I mean, to take them away was really like a personal insult to them. Um, so that was tough. Um, I first of all, let's appreciate that. Okay, so I didn't appreciate it. I said, what's the big deal? We're going for God's kingdom. Can't you get behind us? Um, and, and so I didn't really appreciate the layers behind, like my mom's questioning about how am I going to educate my children or my dad's fretting about their safety. Really, the underlying layer was, how can you take my grandchildren away from me? Um, so let them let them sit with that and, t- and acknowledge that. Like, I know. There's just no way around it. The physical distance is going to be hard. Okay. Once I finally got a clue, um, you know, again, our internet wasn't great. But we tried really hard to call frequently, you know, and to make a, a very concerted effort. And sometimes it was super annoying because that required us getting up at like four in the morning to talk with our parents at, a, at, a, at like at a regular hour there, or you know, it, it, it required a lot more effort on my part, you know. Um, but that is part of the ministry. You're not just—it's not just you know—you're taking care of the people in present in front of you, but the people also that you've left behind, especially if they're not believers. Like that's. Hard. My parents were are believers, but you know have certain priorities like their grandchildren. Um, and then you know a lot of it was like we would send. So this is lovely in the internet age, but like we would just send them lots of pictures. You know we take pictures, but then like you have those mail the photo mail services. Well, that was one thing that I would do is like send physical pictures back to them. You know like these little things that weren't a lot. It just didn't seem like a lot, but it was really the effort. Um, and then lastly, if your parents are able to, we were trying to really work this out for ourselves, but we did try, we did have, we did arrange for our parents to come out the first year to visit us. Um, they told us, both of us told, both sets of families told us, we're never doing that again, but, but at least they came first year. 
Um, I didn't do a great job with this, so <laughs> I'll give you other people's examples. Um, I know like Shutterfly was really a great way to do it, where basically I know a, a family that did the ABCs of their life in their service, and so they just made a picture book for them on a regular basis where they could just see their lives. Um, other people have done like videos where I think for a lot of them, they might not be able to travel to the place that you'll be at. So just to have a video where you kind of say, this is when I get up, this is my room, this is uh, where we eat, it just made them feel much more part of um, people's lives. And so I think that was really great. Um, one other is that sometimes your kids have summers off, and TCKs are amazing international travelers. Um, their home is the airplane. Their home is the airport. And so you could also send them home for the summer for a short period of time. So my daughter spent one summer with her grandma, and I think that was really nice for her, both of them to get to know each other. So I would say think outside of the box in those situations. And I do think it's really dependent on your mission agency and how they view the sort of outside of the box thinking. because. Um, when you go overseas, all of a sudden, um, you're supposed to stay there, and so they have an old-fashioned model of Hudson Taylor where you're supposed to go there and live there and die there. So when you propose, well, my kid might want to go um, back home to visit mom and dad, uh, they kind of sometimes uh, you know, push back on that. So it's going to be very dependent on the kind of mission agency you go with and their attitudes about family, children's needs, mental health, um, and you want to be with a mission agency that's kind of become more uh, aware of just what is at issue and that they're flexible and don't make you feel guilty or less spiritual because you didn't follow the Hustle Taylor model, you know, and all that. So that would be my thought. Um, and. Also, what kind of member care? I do emphasize that. There's a lot of built-in um, counseling that happens, but not all mission agencies do that. So be very proactive. Ask people that have been on the mission field, because they could kind of give you the inside story of some of the mission agencies <laughs> and what they might recommend for you and all that, because every family is going to be unique, and you want to feel like you are heard and seen as a family. Um, a lot of TCKs feel like they're helpless because not only do they sometimes feel like they're the casualty or byproduct of their parents' decision, but they also have witnessed a lot that their parents don't have any decision-making abilities because the mission agency basically dictates for them what they need to do. And so sometimes the organization can be the last voice of authority rather than the parent. And if they get that, sometimes they feel even more like they're not heard. And so definitely be aware of the kind of organization you go with. Um, I think we're supposed to end. So we're thankful so much for your question and answers. And please seek out people in the audience. Um, Shirley Brown right here in the city, she is part of the um, counseling program and all that, and she has so many resources and such. So as we've said, Jenny and I are humbled. Uh, we're not the world-renowned authorities, but we're just passionate women who want to see TCKs and families flourish. So that's why we're up here. But if you ask us our expertise, I'm not sure if we have a lot. But we're thankful. Yeah, thankful for you to be part of our, our journey.